to Look Unfamiliar, the show that never tires of pointing out that She's So High by Blur was actually a double A side with I Know. I'm Tim Worthington, and once again, we're going to be taking a look at some of the things that some people remember, but most people don't. And joining me today is writer Stephen O'Brien. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Tim. Hello, everybody. Hello. So, Stephen, what are you up to and where can we find it? Just before I start, I should point out to everybody that I'm not better known and more talented Steve O'Brien when writes for SFX and Total Film, etc. I do owe Stephen an apology because for many years he's been asked the question, are you the guy who did the press kind fanzine? And can I just clarify once and for all, it wasn't him. <laughs> but in terms of what I'm up to now, I run two blogs. I run Meaningless Insights, which is a general blog about music, TV, film. And I also run another blog called Keen Kantamatowski, which, as the stock line goes, is a blog which is sticking up for Stock Aiken Waterman. I wrote a book last year called 80s UK Christmas Singles. Planned to be the first in a series of 80s UK singles themed books with other themes that could be summer singles, uh, Easter singles, <laughs> or mitzvah singles. I've... Well, you'll be delighted to know that I'm hoping we're going to get Steve on this at some point. Never yeah. mind that, I'm hoping we will get both Bob Stanleys very soon, so everyone is going to be so confused. Uh, it's funny you should mention Stephen Moffat, because that brings us neatly into our first clip. Hello, Mr. Platt's office. Oh, sorry to interrupt, Mr. Platt. Uh, your suit and shirt. What? Your wife, she's fine. Said she changed her mind about the suit you should wear for the talk. Mr. Platt. She uses one of our bikes so she can just... Mr. Platt. Listen, shh, quiet. Listen, put Dobbin over there. And listen, Nigel, if she phones again, tell her she's a deranged old sow and Transactors Dispatch Riders are not her personal property. You're a deranged old sow and Transactors Dispatch Riders are not your personal property. Yeah, right. Uh, you better be going. It's your wife, Mr. Platt. Okay, now, if I mentioned The Office, you'll probably be saying, but everyone remembers that. It was where the man said, ha-ha, the disabled, and then did the dance. But it's not that, The Office. No, this is The Office, which is the better of the two offices, in my opinion. Before the Gervais and Merchant office, there was, indeed, as you say, the Moffat office. So what this was, this was a 1996 one-off special for ITV, written by Stephen, produced by Sandra Hastings, and it was, indeed, a Richmond Films production directed by Paul Jackson who many of you will know uh, for his work in Young Ones and many other things as well and this was basically a one-off now I seem to recall racking my brains I seem to recall I don't think this was even a pilot I seem to recall that the plan was is that they would do periodic one-off episodes mm. of this show it was never designed as a, a six-part and now anybody can correct me if I'm wrong there unfortunately it only ever made one episode not quite sure why because it was quite I mean Probably not Stephen's greatest piece of work, but that's not. I'm, I don't mean that in a negative in, in a negative way because it is a solid piece of work. It, it's basically a half hour farce tapping into what Stephen did with joking apart, albeit set in an office. And it followed Robert Lindsay was the star, and he played a kind of a middle manager called Norman Platt, who had a nice office with an ensuite bathroom, which is a bit bizarre. But in fairness to the episode, it does lead to a pretty good gag. Back with Robert Lindsay on this one, um, was Ida Blair as Norman's boss, Rebecca Front as Norman's PA, a temporary PA, and last but by no means least, Stephen Dennis. I knew that was coming. Stephen Dennis as a motorcycle courier, who spent a lot of the time with a helmet on. But then the motorcycle courier bit, again, is another comedic thread to, the, to this episode. And basically what this, the way the story plays out is Norman, Norman's got a new boss who's played by Ida Blair, He's very worried about you know, meeting the boss and the boss is making, laying off colleagues and stuff. From some comments from his PA, he seems to think that his boss might want to sleep with him, 
which then leads to a serious misunderstanding, which results in Norman stripping off his boss's office, then realising he's a massive mistake, and then spending the next 20 minutes trying to get out with his dignity intact. Probably takes a little while to get going, really, but after the first few minutes, it cracks up a fair pace. You know, whatever you might think of Stephen Moffat, I know Tim sometimes has varying views on different parts of his work, but certainly for me, it's a solid farce. That's one of Stephen's skills in comedy at farce, and it certainly delivers on that score. You know, it's a bit of a shame that it didn't carry on because I think it was, the, you know, this episode was pretty promising and it ends with a terrific payoff. But it was just really good fun. Mm. It just didn't go beyond my episodes. Well, I think I might know a possible reason, which was, it was made by Carlton, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it that was around either. the time David Cameron was there. And we all know his track record with spotting what will be successful. <laughs> so, uh, But moving on from that, I mean, Stefan Dennis could fill an episode of this on his own. I mean, for a start... Who remembers his second hit, This Love Affair, which he performed on Wogan? But um, how did he come to be in this? You know what? I, I never asked Sandra about that one. I, I, I mean, this was 1996, so, mm. you know, I know obviously Stephen Dennis is back in Neighbours now, but I'm assuming, I'm not quite sure, but I'm, I'm assuming he wasn't mm. in the show at this point in time. He was probably being Frank and Furter in the Rocky Horror Show because everybody from Australian <laughs> Soap seemed to do that in the mid-90s. <laughs> Even Rebecca Elmer Goglu. Well, I would have gone to see it had that <laughs> happened. Sure you would have done. But I think, um, I'm not quite sure, but, you know, an unusual addition to the cast. But, um, yeah. but you know, he quits himself pretty well. Oh, yeah, no, I never had any sort of... Yeah. I always thought he was a reasonable actor, yeah. but obviously, I mean, Stephen Moffat, there's a school of thought that, although he was successful, you know, Press Gang was a big hit, he didn't really break it big until, you know, sort of Doctor Who, Sherlock and so on. What other hidden gems would you say there were early in his career? I mean, obviously, I am aware of most of them, but probably a lot of people listening won't be. Obviously, there's Press Gang, and after that... He did Joking Apart. He did, did a, he did a couple of episodes of Med's Most Horrid, which is French. And he did Exam Conditions, oh, which was yeah, another yeah. contender for, for this item here. And it's kind of nearly a Press Gang spin-off. It pretty is, yeah. So Paul Reynolds... Um, Basically as Colin. As Colin, <laughs> sitting in the exam. Obviously, he wasn't Colin, but, you know, that kind of character. Another pilot designed for an hour-long comedy drama called Privates. Um, right, even it, I have never heard of that. Right, this was produced, again, it was done for Richmond Films, um, probably around the time of Chalk, which was Stephen's latest sitcom, which, again, had a mixed react- reception. But this was, as the name suggests, a comedy drama about um, a group of private detectives. Ironically enough, um, the, lead, the lead cast member in this was Brian Connolly, who, of course, did a good 10 in the Grimleys. Yes. Um, Beyond that, I don't know much about it. Right, well, if you're listening, Network, get that on DVD. <laughs> but from one kind of comedy, you know, from quiet, silent comedy, onto something much more noisy. Anywhere I will find you, don't care where. Look behind you, I'll be there, following you around. Rain or shine. You won't shake me, I don't mind Where you take me, spend my time Following you around Okay, that was... As you'll know, you've heard in the podcast that me and Ben Baker have done. We're quite obsessed with this. That was Following You Around by Morecambe and Wise, which is <laughs> the theme song they used when they went to Thames at the end, the Stuart Lee once said. And it's basically a stalker's charter. But uh, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about... The Morecambe and Wise board game. Okay, now, I've never seen this before. I've had a look at the cover, and it appears to be them playing a very large Connect Four, but with sort of Andy Warhol renditions of their faces instead of the circles. Is that correct? 
Yeah, oh, there's a bit of background to this story. Now, disclaimer, I've never played the game, nor was any sane <laughs> person want to. The reason I'm aware of the more wise board game is that in 1986, I um, had a short-lived paper round working for the local news agent, Beryl's. So this is run by Beryl and her brother, Dickie Bo Dave. I can confirm this, listeners, because I have actually been in there. <laughs> it was an amazing shop. Now, the most amazing thing for me is that when he walked in the shop, it's no longer there, by the way, um, which is a great shame. It was a very, I dare say, nothing had been done to the shop for 10 or 20 years. And I had been there for 20 or 20 years before. Um, so it was a very old-fashioned shop, very dusty. Um, but on the top shelf, above the displays, were two bizarre items, which... Even seems old hat in 1986. The first was a Planet of the Apes tote bag with a drawing of Galen on the front. <laughs> you know these kind of tote bags, not the, like the ones you get now, which is really trendy, but the kind of very sort of rectangular ones. PVC, that, yeah, yeah. No, 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 the kind of PVC type thing, yeah. yeah. And often girls in, in schools, not being sexist there, <laughs> the girls in the schools would have these, obviously not ones with bloody Galen on them. <laughs> So that was up there, and that must have been about the TV. If you look at the TV mm. show, that would have been 1976. But next to it, prized place on this top shelf was the Morecambe Wise board game. And I remember going to the shop thinking, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> that was proof to me that's quite that carbon dates the shop, that nothing mm. had been done to that shop for 10 years. Well, that also, that that's what's on their top shelf instead of like Razzle or something. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more like um, Razzle and Wise or something. You know. Do we know what year it's from? Yes, from 1976. It right. was produced by Dennis Fisher, Dennis with a Y. And as you said to me before, it was a kind of a, a bizarre hybrid of, I don't know, Connect Four and, well, the, and the Sorry title sequence. Yeah, well, they did this a lot, Dennis Fisher, because I've got the Dennis Fisher Doctor Who game, which looks like the most exciting thing in the world when you start playing it, because it's got, you know a plastic TARDIS and, like, different coloured Tom Bakers. And it's just like Ludo. You just, like, move around these planets and nothing happens. Well, this was really bizarre. It is like a kind of a Connect Four-style matrix, but with these little square panels with bizarre, like, pop art images, Warhol-esque images of Morecambe and Wise, often solo rather than together. And I, th- I understand that the thing was she had to kind of knock the mouse in pairs or something. Right. Actually knock the two of them out, like, <laughs> punch them. <laughs> but the thing for me is that, aside from the fact it lay on this shelf for 10 mm. years, who thought it was a good idea for a kid's Christmas present? What kids sat there, even in the darkest days of the 1970s with mass unemployment, the three-day week, you know, Dominic Sandbrook creating history so we could write about it 30 years later in a <laughs> scarf and overcoat. What kid in the dark, what, what long-haired, flared-trousered, latchkey kid was ever in the darkest days when a Morecambe and Wise board game? What next? The Miss Potato based on the Ronnie Corbett sorry title sequence. Well, that makes me think of, I mean, I just don't understand what this game had to do with Morecambe and Wise, what its connection to them was, unless there's some episode I've not seen where they play it, maybe. But it's like the way I had, I had the two Ronnies annual. Yeah. We're in it. It was a two-page thing, fun with your calculator. <laughs> I remember sitting there thinking... They don't do that on the programme. Well, well, why, is that, why is that in there? Well, there was that sketch for calculators. Don't yeah. remember that one? <laughs> Classic sketch. Well, you know, I mean, there were some celebrity games that, you know, in the 70s, they did bear some relations to the actual celebrity. I mean, there's a Derek Griffiths one, Bent Out of Shape, which is about... Really? Bending in, yeah, bending into unusual shapes, which is what Derek Griffiths, that was his stock trade. It was, trade. indeed, yeah. But there's also Dennis Fisher also did Jimmy Savile's Pop 20, which... Uh, 
Maybe we shouldn't dwell on that. Maybe we shouldn't. No. I mean, no. whoever the marketing bombed is Dennis Fisher. Well, you just have to <laughs> wonder what was going on. Right from inexplicable board games. So I can't really think of a link here. So I let's can just have a link. Go on. But we were just talking about 1986. That's when yeah. I had my paper around, and that's when I observed the beauty of the Morecambe Wise board game. And this is probably when you bought this. thinking that sounds a little bit Stock Aitken Waterman, a little bit KLF, a little bit like Sunshine on the Rainy Day by Zoe, and you might be right about all three. So, Stephen, tell us who that was and why you've chosen them. Okay, right, well, that was a band called Brilliant, and that was their second single on WEA Records called Love Is War. As you say, well, as you alluded to before very cleverly, um, Brilliant were made up of, it was a three-piece band comprising of vocalist Stu Montana, Youth, who was a former member of Killing Joke, also known as Martin Glover, and also Jimmy Corti as well, who was formerly part of Zodiac Mind Warp. Of course, you know, went on to do bigger things than this. So anyway, so I plumbed for this one because, um, partly because uh, self-interest here, I'm writing an article for the Keen Kantamatowski blog on Brilliant, and I'm trying to make it quite a comprehensive one. So I've been listening to Brilliant uh, recently. Basically, Brilliant started about 1982, 1983. It was much, um, started by Youth, post-Killing Joke. It went through different permutations and lineups until they arrived at the, the three-piece of Corti, uh, Youth and Montana. They then came into into the sphere of Bill Drummond and Dave Balfe of Food Records. So Drummond and Balfe signed Brilliant to Food Records, which at that time was certainly a subsidiary of WEA Records, Warner Brothers. And Stockake and Waterman were commissioned to produce the album. The viewpoint here is that what Brilliant wanted to do they wanted to try and tap into um the new york disco sound and fuse that with pop music and it was quite an interesting experiment this one not very not a very successful project really for any of the parties involved mm-hmm. the first single which was um, a cover version of james brown's it's a man's man's world reached number 58 in the chart this one reached um, lovers war the second single reached number 64 the two further singles and then an album came out, but again, a lot of the momentum was lost. The first single, Little Man's Man's World, uh, was quite an interesting one because the, the sound they went for there was very much a kind of a, a real nod to Squitty Politti, who of course were very mm. big in 1985. This follow-up single kind of, again, tapping into the New York, well, not necessarily New York, but that kind of US dance style, very much to hark towards Jam and Lewis. It wasn't like a copycat of Jam and Lewis, but you know, their influence is very much is born out on this single. It's got a really great uh, guitar solo in the middle, which I suspect was courtesy of Matt Aiken. The video is quite a laugh. A typical mid-80s video where um, it's studio-bound. 
Youth and Jimmy Corti appear to be sleeping in some kind of graffiti-covered New York taxi, whilst Jim Montana kind of walks around singing about it. The other thing to mention, I don't know if I this before, harking back to what you said before, <laughs> they also performed it on Wogan. Did they? Because I remember them being on, what was it called, No Limits, but I think they were doing Somebody, which I think ah, was right. the single after that this, was wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, and I think the, the, the thing here is, and I think Dave Bryant on his blog um, referred to this when he covered the, the, the singles, is that they did get a lot of coverage now. There was a lot of adverts in the music press. They got a lot of airplay. But critically, the reviews are, are very negative. Yeah. And, you know, I quite like, I, I mean, I suppose if you think about it, with a name like Brilliant, they're on a hide into nothing. Yeah. No matter how good they've been, that name just didn't help, I think, really. I can see why people didn't like them. I think it's an interesting experiment for all parties involved. Most of the material was written by by the band members, um, with some tracks having a co-write with Stock Aiken Waterman. For this album, interestingly enough, is that there were a lot of, aside from Stock and Aiken playing on the record, there were a lot of other session musicians on this, mm. listing the album. This is one of the other reasons I want to mention today, because whilst it was considered a commercial and critical failure, I still think it's quite inf- an influential project. What happened here with Stock Aiken Waterman is that they were working with a band who had written their own songs, and by this point, Stock and Aiken were getting a bit frustrated by this because they, at the same time, at the same year, 85, they were working with a band called Spelt Like This, who were signed to EMI and were managed by Tom Watkins, who went on to manage Pet Shop Boys and Bross, amongst others. And again, Stocking Muslim ended up cancelling that project because and giving the money back and the tapes back because they felt the songs weren't good enough. So I think that experience and brilliance really pushed Stocking Muslim to, to say, we want to develop mm. our own acts and write our own songs rather than just working with what we're given by yeah. record companies. But of course, aside from Stocking and Waterman, we had Jimmy Corti, who went on to form KLF with Bill Drummond, who we mentioned before. Youth went on to be a very successful record producer. Jim Montana went on to have a, a solo career and did some stuff with the KLF under Disco 2000. Oh, yes, yeah. And Dave Balf, of course, went on, continues with Food Records, Bands like Jesus Jones and were Blair on food. Blair were, yeah, yeah. And and Octopus, everyone. Don't oh, forget well, let's Octop- not forget Octopus. Shampoo, actually. They were oh, right. quite successful, yeah. So I think, you know, I think it's definitely worth a listen. Love is War, is, I think, is my favourite mm. track. And I seem to recall, um, there was an interview with Mandy Smith, who did do some recording with PWL, who actually said she would have loved to have done a version of Love is War, which would have been an intriguing right. concept. But I, it's definitely worth a listen. The album's out of print currently, um, but you can find the tracks on YouTube. Again, it's, it's early Stock Aiken Waterman. It's 85, 86, when they were in quite an experimental mm. period and before they sort of found the path to making really successful pop music. So I think for all parties, it's really interesting to listen to what they were doing at that point in time. Well, what I mainly remember about them, I've got to say, was that WEA took every opportunity they could to sneak them onto the Hits album, sort of <laughs> saying, uh, oh, you like this, you like this, and everyone was like, well, no, I don't actually, because they, they didn't really get bought. They didn't, and I think the um, I think the other thing as well is there were a lot of bands like Brilliant around at that time. Mm. I think I'm thinking of the likes of Drum Theatre, Red Box, and there were a number of these bands who were kind of caught between two stools because yeah. you've said many times in our conversations, Tim, about Live Aid and the impact Live Aid had on the music yeah. in the 1980s. And it was, I think, it's a brilliant theory and a very underexplored theory mm. actually. Is that with the success of Live Aid and particularly Queen, is that you had this thing with these interesting bands who were doing things, obviously, like New Romantics and then Synth Pop, and then these kind of bands, like Brilliant and Drum Theatre and Redbox, doing slightly offbeat records, mm. 
Live Aid happens, and then for the next few years, yeah, ironically, until Stock Aitken Morton really took off, you had a period where a lot of bands like you know, Go West, acts like Nick Kershaw, and others who had enjoyed success before, yeah, were really struggling with worthy material, but just couldn't get looking because things changed. Well, I mean, uh, the biggest problem, as far as I remember, for all these bands was they sometimes came across as a bit clever, clever, a bit smarty yeah. pants. And if you like that, smash it to go for you with a vengeance, and that never helped. But uh, speaking of unacceptable smarty pants <laughs> in the 80s, what here's your leave? next choice. Right, well, that's just a generic representation of the Rubik's Cube because I tried and tried and tried to find one of the many interviews with this kid because he was never off the bloody TV when this was around. It's Rubik's Cube related. Tell us what the book is. Right, the book is a classic, Outsold the Bible. You Can Do the Cube by Patrick Bossett. I'm, I'm disappointed you couldn't find the audiobook version, to be quite <laughs> honest with you, to play a little clip. Well, I, I wonder how he actually feels about it now, to be honest, but... You've got to say, when you willingly pose for cover with what I assume is your brother, waving a complete Rubik's Cube in his face, basically go, ha ha, then, you know, you kind of deserve to feel a bit embarrassed later. But how did you first discover this book? Was it the same as me? Were you just yes. fed up of seeing this genius kid on TV? Right, never mind TV. In Liverpool, in the, in the 80s, there used to be, um, I suppose what you call them, like, like a, a low-rent equivalent of Forbidden Planet, a comic book shop called Chapter One. Right, so this was a, this was in the Liverpool City Centre, pretty much a standard independent uh, comic book and film and TV shop. So you walk in, wall-to-wall comics. Funny enough, there was, um, there was an adult-only section towards the back. Really bizarre. But next to the adult section, which we couldn't get to, was like a load of bookshelves. So, of course, you know, always worth a look. But this shop must have had 7,000 copies of You Can Do The Cube. It was on, but Tim, wasn't it? I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, it was nearly a whole shelf full. Nice to wonder, why have they got them? Because people are going in, you know, like Doctor Who fans, Jerry Anderson fans, people who were buying sort of Watchmen and V Vendetta around that point. Where are they going to want a book about <laughs> the Rubik's Cube had been out for about five years by then? We'd even had Rubik's Magic by that point. Nobody cared anymore. I mean, again, it's science to me. I've never read the book. Nobody would have wanted it because, <laughs> you know, aside from having a quick go to Rubik's Cube, you know, I've never tried to do the whole thing because, quite frankly, life's too short. Have you ever, did, have you, did you ever do the Cube? I tried and I gave up, but obviously more famously I had the Rubik's Magic, which I wrote that very popular blog post about <laughs> the pointlessness of it. I just couldn't understand what it was for. I suppose the little anecdote I've got is that um, in the episode of the press gang, Linda Day, who's in a, you know, the main protagonist played by Julius Swaho, those who haven't seen it, is in a really bad mood. Nothing new there. Yeah. But in her anger, she does the um, she completes the Rubik's cube in what seems like seconds. Mm. But of course, what happens is he dropped her hands below you know, the frame mm. or out of the camera, out of camera, and she was past the completed one to do. <laughs> so it's all to see. Kids TV was lying to us then, Tim. It was well. Uh, you see, I mentioned all the sort of people who had actually been going into Chapter One at that point. But I do now wonder. Do you think ever by accident, you know, in their furtiveness, one of the, the sort of dodgy blokes who went in for the adult section sort of came out thinking got like a specialist book and go, why? <laughs> then looked at him so you can do the cube and they go, oh, I don't want to know how to flip edges and twirl corners. 
<laughs> I actually hope that did happen. Well, in a little postscript, I I went to some kind of um, it's part of my day job. I went to um, convention, you know, IT transformation, mm. business transformation, and um, we were shown a video. So anyway, it's about something transport for London about an app they've launched you know, for, for the you know for the customers, and who rocks up on screen but the adult Patrick Bossett. So. Because of Tim and me, Tim and the I've known just as a bit of background there, Tim and I have known each other for 30 years. So obviously there's a lot of in jokes there. So of course, when Patrick Bossett, and it's the Patrick Bossett, appears on screen, I just burst up laughing in this auditorium. <laughs> and the girl who I've gone there with work from where she what's so funny, so funny. I said, I can't tell you, I can't tell you. <laughs> so Patrick Bossett. So he's moved on from Rubik's Cubes. Mm. He's now rocking it digitally. Well, did you know he actually. He wrote that program that could detect if machinery was Millennium Bug, if it was at risk from the Millennium Bug, rather. Oh, um, so he did something worthwhile. He but, did. Uh, well, he saved us all. He did. But uh, one last bit of trivia I've got about You Can Do The Cube. I looked it up on Amazon just before, and I noticed of the original edition, there are two copies available secondhand. One is 47 pence, yeah, and one is 103 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> was that, is, was that, that, is that chapter one completist <laughs> in the bar? Is that? Was the latter one sold by Bosses Enterprises or something? <laughs> no, somebody, somebody needed to stock their own replica chapter one. For £103, you could pay somebody to do the cube for you for six weeks. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, not everything in the 80s was as, um, I hate to say, but as nerdy, as geeky as you can do the cube. There were some things that actually tried to be quite cool, and here's one of them. It was clear we needed to come in with new successful product, and um, we launched, I don't know how many titles in total, 9 or 10 or 11, um, but they weren't, they weren't carrying, basically, so um, it was clear we were heading for trouble. Um, and I think the straw, the last straw, was uh, the launch of LM, which originally was going to be a low-budget um, product, um, where we said, well, we don't probably need to have London offices, and it turned into having London offices, having, I've forgotten now, six or eight staff in London, etc. It went, you know, went way over budget, and we had to kill it before we could actually see whether it was going to be long-term successful or not. I think we did six or eight issues, and then had to kill it because we were in severe trouble. And we never really recovered from that. Okay, whatever I have... I'm not even going to say tell us what it is because I'm just going to have to say whatever I've put there because at the moment I've got no idea what's going to go there. It's represent a magazine called LM. Now, this is something that means a great deal to me. I imagine most people listening won't even have heard of it. Though, funnily enough, Mark Thompson mentioned it in his edition a couple of weeks ago. But, okay, Stephen, tell us more about LM. I had a few options for this one. I was thinking about doing the hit which is a short-lived IPC music magazine, mm-hmm. kind of an older brother of, of number one, I guess, um, and a precursor to Q. Uh, there was another one called Look Alive, which was about 82, 83, which was again from IPC, and it was sort of deemed as a modern, updated version of Look and Learn that only lasted for a few issues. But, <laughs> what do you say? I settled on LM. Now, LM was a teenage kind of... Well, like sort of the late teens men's magazine or a proto men's magazine um, in terms of you know, culture magazine uh, rather than the, the ones we talked about in the back of chapter one. <laughs> this was, um, it only lasted four issues or five if you count the, if you count issue zero 
which was um, like a sampler version of it. It came free with Crash Ethics Spectrum, Zap 64 and Antics. That's it, yeah, <laughs> that's right. It was, um, it was published by Newsfield Publications, who published Crash and Zap exclamation mark 64. Don't forget Antics. There antics. Some people had an Amstrad. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. Apparently so. So apparently... There's a bit of confusion as to what LM actually stands for. Mm. Um, some people have it as Lifestyle Magazine. Some have it as Lively Magazine, which is a bit poor, really, isn't it? Uh, Leisure Monthly. Finally, some people believe it actually stands for Lloyd Mangrum, which yeah. is apparently a fictional writer on Newsfield Publications magazines. Yes, he, in inverted commas, wrote for all the computer ones. It was very scathing, very splenetic about games and the suspicion is that it was just a name that the writers could use to say things that might potentially oh, be libelous but as far as is known he didn't actually exist supposedly he was the nominal editor of lm but it the content of it didn't really reflect sort of a, an angry games reviewer in any way it was a lot more wide-ranging and varied wasn't it it was i, I mean i only had issue three and i actually found issue three having a sort of a few weeks back it had Star Trek on the cover, so it must have been yep. relating to a Star Trek film. That If this was 87, would that have been... Well, they did a different, like, culty TV thing each issue, because uh, the first one had oh, Thunderbirds in, right. so... So it may not have been a, a, tied into a film. Okay, so Star Wars was on the cover... Uh, Star, Star Wars, sorry, Star <laughs> Trek was on the cover, followed by an article about AIDS. But also then follow that is, what, whatever happened to Steve Koppel, footballer? Yeah. Um, could have been one of the items on here. Um, an article on Simply Red... Good reason not to buy it. <laughs> but they bring themselves back up to glory here with um, an article on Level 42, subtitled Living It Up, The Isle of White Way. So I only had issue three. But actually, as you said, Tim, it was quite wide-ranging. Wide I remember at the time, mm. I think it was actually a pretty decent magazine. Yeah. You know, some good articles, quite a broad range of topics on there. I mean, the sample issue came out in 1986. Some of the four issues came out in 1987. Apparently, the reason it didn't really take off... It, 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 Again, it did have disappointing sales, apparently, but those sales did start to show up with trends. Mm. What apparently did for LM was that there was difficulties getting in advertising yeah. income and revenue. Well, I mean, it was very ahead of its time, because let's not be coy about this. Under the pretense of irony, art, or whatever, there was also a first smattering of naked women in it. So, <laughs> in a lot of ways, it was a precursor to FHM loaded, everything like that. It was... Kind of. I'm fairly convinced that somebody working one of those magazines must have seen LM in the 80s and thought, I should just copy that, but with different fonts. And no one will ever <laughs> notice. Uh, because the similarities are just too strong, really. And I think it was probably ahead of its time in many mm. respects, as you say, Tim. I think um, for him magazine, which eventually became FHM, mm. I seem to call that started about 1989. Yeah. If I'm saying correctly. So that was a few years later, but perhaps the, the market was a bit more mature then. Yeah. Unlike the readership, boom. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, but no, I th again, some of the things I've just discussed today, um, you know, were brave experiments that didn't quite come off. And I think uh, LM certainly fits mm. into that category. You know, and actually having a quick look on the internet today, there does seem to have a little cult following for LM. Oh, does it? Yeah. Wow, okay. There's, I'm going to Google for that later. Discussing but... it, yeah. But mentioning uh, A, defunct magazines, and B, aid scare stories, yeah. this was around the same time that we were accosted by a living Marxism salesman who looked like David Deal, <laughs> oh, who yeah. told us that AIDS didn't exist and it was an invention of the Murdoch press to keep people docile. I wonder what he's doing now. Oh, God, no. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, 
he always seems to stop us every second Saturday in Liverpool <laughs> City Centre. And he was every fortnight. He wouldn't have a conversation with you. It's like he was kind of he, he was just sort shouting of and pointing facts at you. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Don't you care about Beck's Bissells or something like this? He was just, he was just random invective. And this is a guy trying to get us to buy his newspaper. Yeah, I bet he's on Twitter now. Yeah, but, <laughs> you know, if you were selling LM, you might have said, well, LM live in Marxism. <laughs> you know, so maybe that's where they went wrong. Maybe, yeah, never mind Lifestyle magazine live in Marxism. And speaking of people wasting their time in the 80s, well, I'm moving on to your last choice, which is represented by this clip. Uh, the Butterfly Ball by Roger Glover out of Deep Purple, which probably a lot of people will know as, you know, a, a sort of adventurous, sort of whimsical track from a prog rock solo album, but which I, and lots of people my age, will know as an animated thing done by Hallison Bachelor, the famous British animation house, that Granada used to put on whenever a programme ran short. It was always the Butterfly Ball. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. We're talking about... ITV daytime schedule replacement. So uh, tell us about some of your favourites. Okay, well, obviously, what was happening, you know, back in the day, we didn't have 24-hour TV. So, you know, you might have some TV sort of in the morning, 9.25, sort mm-hmm. of 12 o'clock. It might go something, it would go off then yeah. and come back in the afternoon. So a very different world then, but, but nothing would delight me more than if I was off school, say, and in the afternoon, and, you know, painting along the Nancy's about to come on or something, mm-hmm. And the Grenada announcer would say, in a change to, to the advertised programme, <laughs> here's Space 1999. And you're going, get in. Yeah. But it's Space 1999. So, and that, you know, that would instantly lift your spirits. Mm. <laughs> There's a lot of cigarette now. Yeah. But, you know, when you were a kid, mm. I mean, say when I was a kid, you know, I, I love Space in 1999. Again, that's a different discussion about the pros and cons of the first series versus second. Yeah. But... When you when you're sick and you're lying on the couch in the duvet over here and a bottle of cellophane wrapped at Lucas Aid, nothing would lift your spirits more than episode of Space mm. 1999. However, this was a you know, this was a double-edged sword because you could be off sick another time, and they say in a change to the advertised program, and you're going come on, come on, come on, come on. Say here's the beachcombers. Now I don't know if any of you remember the beachcombers, <laughs> but nothing sinks the spirits more. Then 45 minutes of a helicopter flying over a thousand logs. And is, was there ever a duller program than the Beachcombers team? Now, everyone I know remembers the Beachcombers, but nobody can remember what actually happened in it. I think John Connors, uh, you know, a mutual friend of ours, yeah. who you've probably all read his blog, got the closest when he said, I think they might have collected logs. But that was it. That's all anyone knows. And I've tried looking up on the internet. You just can't find out what actually happened in it. I'm sure when, you know, I think the last time I had flu, two or three days, and you get into that state where your temperature is so high, you're stuck in the loop of Mm. delirium and 
bizarre snatches of dreams. But I tell you something, I'm sure the last time I flew, the Beast Coma's <laughs> title sequence played over and over in my head for three full days. <laughs> How unfair is that? Well, uh, the thing, it's genuinely true that, I mean, there are quite a few programmes that I saw in those circumstances that until the internet came along, I had started to wonder if I had imagined because nobody upon nobody remembered any of them. I mean, I did eventually find people who heard of The Adventurer, the Gene Barry series, which is the one time I've been off school and I was watching something where I thought, my God, I wish I was actually in school. <laughs> but the things like From a Bird's Eye View, the Millicent Martin adventure show the outsiders that weird australian outback thing with the mad theme song all kinds of things like that oh chopper one see everyone says don't you mean chopper squad no chopper one there was a different one chapter one or chopper one (laughs) but yeah they they would just put on what genuinely whatever they had to hand i mean i know somebody who is absolutely convinced and they i believe them they said they saw an episode of the secret service in about 1979 80 in I can't remember which ITV region, but replacing something else. They did used to stick on whatever was there. And, you know, it's a, never mind the rights clearance and all that. So, what, I mean, why would they do One imagines that it's they, they couldn't locate a tape. A tape hadn't arrived mm. at the station. The tape had snapped. Or something had happened in the news that precluded Crown Court being suitable or that sort of thing, you know. Yeah, I mean, all those things. Those things are really bizarre. Like, there was episodes of the 1990s action-adventure series Bugs on BBC, which, if there'd been some kind of incident with it, including mm. an explosion, they pull Bugs off the screen. Oh, yeah. we can't have too many explosions, but here's an episode of The Casualty with an explosion. <laughs> and, of course, there were those, like, when you would look at the regional listings in the TV Times, I mean, it wasn't really the same with the BBC. They didn't have that much variation, but you'd see another region think, what program's that? What is Puffin's Place? <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and also, oh, those sods are getting repeats of Randall and Hopkirk. That's not yeah, fair. Yeah, that wasn't it. It was yeah. always Randall and Hopkirk was on yeah. the other regions. And we get the beachcombers. Yeah. 45 minute of vlogs. <laughs> not fair. Although uh, the, the BBC's favourite choice whenever they need to replace something, just put open all hours on. Or the Pink Panther. Or the Pink Panther. Pink Panther show, sorry. Yeah. Or Red and Blue. But <laughs> I'm not going down that logic no. bomb path that... I could, I've tried to explain that programme to people, and they have never got it. <laughs> okay, well, it's time to regionally replace uh, this episode, because sadly that was your last choice. But, it was. Uh, thank you very much, Stephen. I think we should play out with the theme from the Beachcombers, don't you? Yeah, sit back and think about the logs. And on that note, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>